And so, it's the beginning of the end on the road to collapsing COVID. A vaccine is being rolled out before the end of the year. You and I are still the front line for protection. But at last we can say it may not be over by Christmas. But troops are on the way. Breakthrough on COVID vaccine, but restrictions extended in Scotland. Scott's secretary warns no referendum for 40 years. And the votes in the post, how Corona could change election 2021. I'm Charles Fletcher from Caledonia Media. This is Scotland's favourite political show, The Week in Hollywood. We're not at the end of the tunnel yet, but a glimmer of light has appeared. Yes, there will be dips in the road, and that means the light might be obscured at times, but it is very much there, and we are heading towards it. But this was the most positive indication yet that science will get us out of this, and it will hopefully do so in the not-too-distant future. That is really good news. Almost half a million Scots in Angus, Fife and Perth and Conross are now in tighter coronavirus restrictions. Their council areas have been moved up a tier to level three. That's just one step away from the virtual lockdown of level four. They join people across the central belt from Arran to East Lothian. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon tells the Scottish Parliament the virus must continue to be tackled. This in a week when we had the breakthrough news of a vaccine that could begin to be rolled out before the end of the year. Like most people in my position have had to deliver so much bad news over the past seven months. Um, Forgive me if I've uh, enjoyed the ability to be a bit more positive over the past 24 hours. But of course there's a long way to go and and I think we all have to be open-eyed about this. But it is good news and probably, as I said, the best news we've had. But if there is a, a risk to it, it's that people sit back and say, well, we can just wait for the vaccine and we don't have to bother with the restrictions anymore. That is not the case. We have to right now make sure we stick with all of these restrictions. Frankly, to make sure that by the time we get, hopefully to the spring, and the vaccine is helping us come out the other end of this, uh, we get to that stage with as few lives lost as possible, with as little ill health as possible, um, and with uh, the burden of COVID being as uh, minimal as we can possibly make it. And that takes all of us continuing to do all of the right things all of the time at the moment. The vaccine is welcome news as we continue to go through this awful year together. Here are thoughts from Deputy First Minister John Swinney, Green MSP Mark Ruskell and Conservative Mardo Fraser. The news of significant progress in the development of a COVID vaccine is very, very welcome news. Um, But, you know, let's wait and see. And I think in the meantime, it's really important that we don't allow the virus to take hold again. I understand that the trials are showing that uh, 90% of people could be protected against COVID-19. And I would certainly want to reassure all of my constituents that the Scottish Government is very focused on taking forward all the steps that are necessary to make sure that we can deploy and deliver the vaccine as quickly and as effectively as we possibly can do once it has been developed and is able to be delivered. And I hope that it's not just going to be distributed in wealthy countries but is available on a fair basis around the world. It's been a long, hard year 
2020 and there is a prospect of a vaccine that means that most of us will be able to get back to some degree of normality in the new year. So it's welcome news but we should stick with the restrictions and make sure that we're suppressing the virus within our community. But I think in the meantime, you know, let's stay patient, let's stay safe uh, and hopefully governments will be able to roll out an effective vaccine. And it's good that as we get towards the end of it, finally, we're starting to see some light at the end of the tunnel. But before we get there, we remain the front line in taking on this vicious virus. As the months unfold, we're learning more about it. And now having celebrated loved ones surviving, we now see them suffering from the effects of what's been called long COVID. Across the country, let's take some time to consider the measures in our communities. Nicola Sturgeon says there's work yet to be done. We're not at the end of the tunnel yet, but a glimmer of light has appeared. Yes, there will be dips in the road and that means the light might be obscured at times, but it is very much there and we are heading towards it. Yesterday's news from the Pfizer vaccine trial was extremely encouraging. That's probably an understatement. And that, of course, is not the only vaccine undergoing trials just now. Of course, there are questions still to be answered and hurdles yet to be overcome. And it will take time, practically and logistically, to get large numbers of people vaccinated. But this was the most positive indication yet that science will get us out of this. And it will hopefully do so in the not-too-distant future. That is really good news. Of course, even the not-too-distant future is still the future. And that means, for now, it is down to all of us to keep the virus under control and save lives by sticking to the rules and guidance. But here, too, we have some cause for cautious optimism. The sacrifices everyone is making are hard and they feel never-ending, but they are helping. They have made a difference and they are saving lives. I have no doubt about that and no one should be in doubt about that. To illustrate that point, let me give some detail on one of the measures, just one of the measures we look at each week. The average number of new cases per day over a continuous seven-day period based on the day when each test sample was given. In just three weeks, between Friday 25th September and 16th October, Scotland's average daily figure for new cases increased by more than 150%. It rose from 482 to 1,217 If that scale of increase had continued, we would now have around 3,000 new cases a day. But instead, in the next three-week period, the number of new cases stayed at more or less the same average daily level. So by last Friday, the average daily figure was 1,174. There have also been some signs of a fall in hospital admissions. In the seven days to 30th of October, 725 people were admitted to hospital with COVID. In the seven days to 6th November, just last Friday, 545 people were admitted. So the point I'm making is this. There is no doubt that the restrictions we have put in place and that people are abiding by have dramatically slowed the spread of the virus. But of course, that figure for hospital admissions, more than 500 in a week, is still too high. The number of new cases we are seeing, more than 1,000 a day on average, is also still too high. And this is crucial. While we have seen a levelling off, we are not yet seeing a sustained fall in cases. In fact, although there was a very slight fall in some recent weeks, last week we actually saw a slight increase. Clearly, that requires continued caution. As I've set out before, a rising or even plateauing rate of infection is not a stable position. We want to see a decline in cases. 
Also, in light of the situation I've just outlined, it would clearly not be prudent to ease restrictions today, with one exception for our three island authorities, which I'll set out shortly. Firstly, I can confirm that Highland, Murray, Orkney, Shetland and the Western Isles will remain at level one. However, there must be no complacency in these areas. Restrictions still in place must be adhered to and all necessary precautions taken in workplaces, hospitality, schools and colleges and healthcare settings. There is one restriction that we do intend to ease for people living in Shetland, Orkney and the Western Isles. From Friday, residents of these three island authorities will be able to meet with one other household inside their homes up to a strict maximum of six people. We're able to make this change because case numbers in these island authorities are very low and sporadic, and we recognise that the social isolation caused by such a restriction is often exacerbated in island communities where there are not as many public places to meet. However, and this is an important caveat, importation of the virus is a real risk to the islands. For that reason, we will also be issuing clear guidance advising anyone who goes to or returns to the islands from the mainland to avoid in-house mixing for a period after their return. Unfortunately, we don't yet consider it prudent to lift this restriction for people in Highland and Murray, uh, the other level one areas. Although cases in these areas remain relatively low, we have seen some volatility in recent days. So to people living across the Highlands and in Murray, as for people in the rest of the country, we continue to ask that you do not visit each other's homes except for essential purposes such as childcare, looking after a vulnerable person or being part of an extended household. I know this is tough, but it remains the single most effective way of preventing transmission of the virus from one household to another. Let me turn now to those areas currently in level two. I can confirm that Aberdeenshire, Aberdeen City, the Borders, Dumfries and Galloway and Argyll and Butte will all remain at level two. These are all areas that will be hopeful, uh, as I am, of a move to level one soon. However, while there are some signs of stability and even improvement in most of them, there is not yet sufficient evidence of a sustained decline in the number of cases. Indeed, I have to point out that in the Borders and although to a lesser extent in Dumfries and Galloway, we have seen an increase in cases in the most recent data that we have available. For these reasons, we consider it sensible for these areas to remain in level two for now, but we do remain hopeful that some or all of them will be able to move to level one soon. The other areas currently in level two are Fife, Perth and Kinross and Angus. And I can confirm that we have taken the very difficult but, in our view, necessary and precautionary decision to move Fife, Perth and Kinross and Angus to level three from Friday. While on the raw indicators alone, Angus and Perth and Kinross are not yet meeting the level three thresholds and Fife is meeting just one of them, all three areas are on a sharply rising trajectory. The most recent data shows that in the space of a week, the seven-day number of cases per 100,000 of the population has increased in Perth and Kinross by 32%, in Fife by 40% and in Angus by 47%. The advice of the Chief Medical Officer and National Clinical Director is that level two restrictions may well not be sufficient to slow down and reverse increases of this magnitude and as a result, an early move to level three was strongly recommended. I know how disappointing this will be to residents and businesses in these three areas. However, and this is an important point, by acting now, 
we can hopefully prevent an even more serious deterioration in the situation in future. I would ask people living in these areas to check the Scottish Government website to understand the restrictions in place at Level 3. Businesses will also find details there of the financial support available from the Scottish Government, which, of course, is in addition to the UK Government's furlough scheme. Now, a factor relevant to both Angus and Perth and Ross is proximity to and interaction with the City of Dundee. Dundee entered Level 3 on 2nd November, and I can confirm that it will remain at Level 3 for now. However, I hope the three authorities going into Level 3 this week will take some encouragement from it. The most recent data shows cases and test positivity declining in the city of Dundee. And while it's too soon to be sure that this will be sustained, I want to stress that the trend is very much positive at this stage. I can also confirm that the other 18 local authorities currently at Level 3 will remain there for now. Signing officer, there are many people across our country right now who are grieving the loss of a loved one, too many people. Many more have lost jobs or are right now worried about losing their jobs. And, of course, some people are living with the long-term health effects of COVID. For these carrying the heaviest burden of this virus, words are, of course, little comfort. But for all of that and for all the fatigue, frustration and apprehension that we all feel, let's not forget that glimmer of hope. The numbers I report for new cases, people in hospital and dying, remind us that this virus continues to exact a terrible toll. And looking around the world just now, it's easy to see that if we are not very careful, things could get worse. But against that, we can also see that the sacrifices we make do have an impact and are having an impact. And just as his announcement about a vaccine is the best news we've heard since the start of this pandemic. One of the points I've tried to stress in the past few months is that at some point this will all be over. At some point we will be looking back on it rather than living through it. Today, though tough times do still lie ahead, that seems a bit more real, a bit more graspable for all of us. Of course, it doesn't remove the need for caution. It will be over one day, hopefully soon, but it is not over yet. So this is not the time to let down our guard. Now is the time to do everything we can to look after and look out for each other. The more we can keep each other safe in the weeks and months ahead, the more we can look forward to brighter days in the spring. And ahead of those brighter days, at this moment, the other 18 local authority areas remain in Level 3. But there is a possibility of some being moved up to Level 4 if the number of cases continues to rise. Here's Labour leader Richard Leonard. We all appreciate the balancing act needed between the harms of the virus and the wider damage inflicted by the restrictions themselves. Damage to businesses, damage to jobs and the rising isolation, anxiety and loneliness of many across Scotland. Huge sacrifices are being made. The First Minister, in setting out the new framework only 12 days ago, said that, I quote, our aim is that the restrictions should be in place for as short a time as possible. But today, not one local authority area has been moved to a lower tier, and the whole of Fife, Perth and Kiross and Angus are being moved up to level three from Friday. All the evidence must be shared, and it must be persuasive. The purpose of the new strategic framework was to be to provide clarity and transparency in the government's decisions. But the announcement today raises more questions, not least about what it will take for communities to move down a tier. So what will it take? And why it is 
that the First Minister, after eight months, is now contemplating the serious measure of applying the force of law to travel restrictions? First Minister. Um, on that last point, we've never ruled that out over the past seven months, but we have always encouraged, across all of these measures, voluntary compliance, because I believe in our behavioural science uh, advisors would, uh, I think, uh, back this up, that it is better to encourage and support people to do the right thing rather than use the force of law when they do the wrong thing. Uh, but we will not rule out, and haven't ruled out, and in fact have moved to a legal position on things like face coverings, and I think that is the, the, the responsible approach for any government to take. Um, on the question of uh, the, the different harms, uh, obviously the virus does harm directly and the way in which we tackle the virus does harm uh, as well. But I think it is important for all of us to recognise that if we don't tackle the harm of the virus, then we exacerbate the other harms. We don't minimise them. I think there is, understandably, because everybody is frustrated and people are worried about jobs and businesses, a sense that if we just ease up on the restrictions to tackle the virus, then the economic harm won't happen. That is a fallacy. If we allow the virus to run out of control, the harm on the economy uh, will be worse. Uh, but of course, we need to make sure support is in place uh, while we do that, and uh, we have put support packages in place. Willie Rennie. Fife will want to know what we've got wrong and what we need to do to get back to level two. Over the last few months and in other areas of Scotland, the First Minister has been able to say it's been pubs or indoor social gatherings. So what data is available from testing and tracing about the spread and the cause of the spread in Fife, as well as Angus and Perth and Kinross? The First Minister knows I am frustrated about the Scottish Government's slow pace of progress on testing. If they are testing all students in England for Christmas, what is stopping the First Minister doing the same for students in Scotland? With the best will in the world, sometimes people get it and sometimes people transmit it and sometimes it can run out of control for a period. I think we've got to be careful about language that suggests people are to blame for that. However, it is important that we make very clear that all of us, through our individual actions, can help minimise that. We can't guarantee we won't get it, we can't guarantee we won't pass it on, but by following the facts advice, by abiding by all restrictions, uh, we can minimise the chances. Uh, there will be... Uh, the, the, the situation in Fife right now, it has um, accelerated quite quickly. Uh, the figure I gave uh, earlier on is that over the past week, and these are figures going up to the 6th of November... Uh, there's been a 40% increase in the cases per 100,000 of population. Over the same period, the positivity test rate has gone up by 1.5%. Uh, we have uh, a rising projection for uh, hospital and ICU admissions, um, although uh, we are not at the moment seeing uh, these being breached uh, in Fife. And the hope is with Fife, with Perth and Kinross and with Angus acting quickly here, as we have reason to believe might be happening in Dundee, uh, will uh, bring this under control and lead to these areas being in tougher restrictions for a shorter period than might be the case if we waited and it, run, it ran further, further out of control. To check your level, please go to your council website or COSLA or the Scottish Government. Business across Scotland is suffering and struggling with this pandemic. Maurice Golden, Conservative, West Scotland. The Scottish Tourism Alliance has warned the sector faces a third winter. There is funding available to the SNP to offer help if they choose to. £500 million unspent in their autumn budget revision in addition to the UK government 
providing Scotland with a £1.7 billion boost. So can the First Minister confirm how much of this will be spent protecting jobs and supporting Scottish businesses? First Minister. Uh, firstly, let me make a, an important point, uh, because I understand how difficult this is for businesses, and it's a point that has been recognised by the UK Government in the action they have taken through the, the lockdown currently in place in England, that if we don't control the virus, we do more damage to the economy in the medium to long term. And I know that is difficult for businesses that are struggling right now, but that is the reality. That's why uh, the steps we're taking to control the virus uh, are right for health and lives, but also ultimately uh, right for the economy. We will invest every penny we can in supporting businesses. In addition to the UK furlough scheme, we already have a package of business grant support, and businesses can find uh, detail of that, uh, again, on the Scottish Government website, and that is administered through local authorities. We are also considering over and above that for particular sectors what additional support we can uh, provide and we will set out details of that as quickly as possible but there will be uh, no uh, penny that is available to us for this purpose left unspent because it's vital when we are asking businesses to do unprecedented things that the governments uh, across the UK give them as far as possible unprecedented support. It's six weeks until Christmas and the four nations of the UK have held the first in what's likely to be a series of talks about a joint approach to easing restrictions. The move is to help families have as near a normal Christmas as possible in the midst of this pandemic. While no decisions have been made other than the aim to help ensure students can travel home, that'll be through a mix of testing and staggered travel dates. The chamber at Holyrood was electrified this week amid concerns over the effectiveness of the government's Test and Protect programme. Labour's Deputy Leader Jackie Bailey brought an urgent question to the floor, but not before the presiding officer, Ken McIntosh, rebuked Health Secretary Jean Freeman. He said she had prioritised media interviews over answering questions in the chamber. It all got rather heated after that. Next item of business is an urgent question from Jackie Bailey on the performance of Test and Protect. Uh, before I call Ms Bailey, I would just like to highlight that my preference would have been for this urgent question to, be, have, to have been scheduled before the Labour Party debate on testing for all health and social care workers, given the clear crossover between the two issues. This possibility was explored with the Scottish Government, and my understanding is that an earlier time slot was not possible due to the Cabinet Secretary's diary commitments and the need for time to prepare for the debate and urgent questions, both of which are entirely understandable reasons. I was, however, surprised to see the Cabinet Secretary giving an interview to journalists in the garden lobby around the time that had been put to the government. I believe that the interview was not primarily about the subject matter of the question. However, this issue was raised in questions and answers. Can I restate my strong expectation that ministers making themselves available to answer parliamentary questions in the chamber should take precedence over media interviews or briefings? We'll turn now to the urgent question, Jackie Bailey. Thank you, Presiding Officer. To ask the Scottish Government when it was informed that errors had been made in the publicly reported contact tracing performance of Test and Protect. Cabinet Secretary Jean Freeman. Uh, thank you, Presiding Officer. If I may, just before I answer the question, I hear what you have said, and of course, uh, had it been within my control, I would not have been the interviewer who asked me a question which was not what was scheduled to be discussed. It was the vaccination programme. But unfortunately, I do not control the questions the media asked me. In terms of the urgent question, 
I presume members I presume members now wish to hear the urgent answer. Public Health Scotland alerted the Scottish Government to an error in the contact tracing time statistics on the 4th of November, that was last Friday, shortly before midday, stating that, uh, last Thursday rather, stating that a coding error had been discovered. Public Health Scotland added an alert to their 4th of November publication and web pages, which stated that an error had been discovered and that a revised set of tables would be instead released at midday on the 6th of November. Public Health Scotland subsequently informed the Office for Statistics Regulation and the revised figures were published on Friday, 6th of November at midday. Jackie Bailey. Um, the errors in the contact tracing data revealed by the Sun newspaper are truly staggering and undermine public confidence in the system. Contact tracing is performing five times worse than the Scottish Government reported. For those that tested positive, less than half were contacted in 24 hours. In one week in September alone, it was a minuscule 3.9% of positive cases that were contacted. This means that some 15,000 people who tested positive were not contacted within 24 hours over that period. And now, now we're not even phoning people, we're simply sending them text messages. In May, SAGE said that delays in contact tracing would have an impact on the R number. Does the Cabinet Secretary therefore believe that this error resulted in an increased spread of COVID in September and October? Cabinet Secretary. Uh, uh, no, I do not. And actually, what I think undermines public confidence is misrepresentation, wherever that comes from, whether it is from other benches or elsewhere. And can I just be clear? I am really disappointed that Ms Bailey would prefer to take what Baroness Dido Harding says about how we do our job than the facts. I'm afraid that the Baroness, the good Baroness, is wrong. Uh, we do not just send SMS, we phone contacts, index cases, up to three times until we find the contact. And in terms of those that we are then tracing as contacts, it is a mixture of phone calls and SMS moving incrementally to entirely phone calls. So the, the information that was miscoded and wrong doesn't deny the fact that in terms of the World Health Organization's requirement, which says that uh, at least 80% of new cases have their close contacts traced and in quarantine within 72 hours of case confirmation, the fact is that in the week to the 8th of November, 95.8% of contact tracing of all positive cases was completed within 72 hours far exceeding the World Health Organization's requirement. So I repeat what I said earlier. Uh, it is unfair and entirely wrong to the staff who are working so hard in our test and protect system to claim that, no, it's, it's not me that is doing test and protect. It is those staff. They are working hard. They are working long hours. They are doing exceptionally well. And they are helping us to suppress the virus. Now, you might not like that answer clearly on both sides of this chamber. You don't. But the facts are the facts are the facts. And you are wrong. Jackie Bailey. Can I say with all, all due respect to the Cabinet Secretary, I've never knowingly 
quoted the Baroness. Um, it is indeed constituents that have contacted me to tell me that they've been advised by text message. Can I also advise her that one cherry-picked statistic does not restore confidence in the system? The First Minister has told the Chamber many times that everything was fine. Contact tracing is working well. But the truth is different. Contact tracers work extremely hard. They do deserve our thanks, but there are not enough of them, and that is the responsibility of the Scottish Government. We were promised 2,000 contact tracers seven months ago. We got 800 seconded posts. Ministers boosted about 20,000 applications, but they have only been contacted in the last few weeks. Given the rising number of positive COVID cases, what assessment has been made of demand? Because there are now 2,000 contact tracers. It's only taken seven months. But is that going to be enough to cope? And finally, presiding officer, we expect the public to take responsibility and follow the rules. Doesn't the government have a responsibility too to get contact tracing right to stop the spread of the virus? Cabinet Secretary. Yes, we absolutely do have that responsibility, which is why I'm glad that we're meeting it and getting contact tracing right. Because if we look at the figures, the revised Public Health Scotland figures, revised after they had spotted their coding error, for the period from the 9th of August to the 25th of October, the time taken between the case appearing in the test and protect system to the interview being completed by the contact tracer, 95 per cent within 72 hours. I do not believe this is a system that is failing. In terms of the number of contact tracers we have, we have 2,221 tra fully trained contact tracers. As we said at the outset of Test and Protect, we would have 2,000 fully trained contact tracers. We had them. We've now got another 221. We would flex the system against the demand that the system had. That makes perfect sense. Perfect sense. And that is what we have been doing. So we have sufficient contact tracers to meet the demands of the current system and the predicted demands as we go forward. But, but... Ms Bailey, it, it won't work for you to just talk at me while I am answering your question. But we will continue to uh, advertise, recruit, train and bring on board additional contact tracers, including in our bank system, so that we have that backup if the number of cases should rise significantly and 2,221 contact tracers is insufficient. Willie Rennie. I am so disappointed the Health Secretary is defending the indefensible. For, for months now, I have been repeatedly rebuked by the First Minister for questioning the effectiveness of the testing and tracing system. I did so because outbreaks were not being brought under control by Test and Protect. Now we discover thousands of close contacts who had a high chance of being contagious were out and about when they should have been self-isolating. And the Health Secretary says that she would have done nothing different if she had known this. That's Codswallop, and she knows that. We would have had more tracers. So can the Health Secretary tell me this? How many more people were infected, infected, how many more people were infected as a result of this error? 
Cabinet Secretary. Presiding officer, this is a coding error. It's about how you put data into the system. And what it meant was that the numbers that had gone into the system saying that in the cases had been contacted within 24 hours were out. And that was revised. And members can look at the revised data and see the difference between what was originally published and what was then revised when the coding error was corrected. That is not people who have been missed. And I am not defending the indefensible. I am simply pointing out that our test and protect system more than meets the World Health Organization standard required, more than meets it, that the, we have more than enough contact tracers fully trained and ready to be deployed, but we continue to recruit more so that we have a bank of those. So this is not me defending the indefensible. I'm really sorry to the members in this chamber. This is me simply stating the facts. And I regret that they don't like it. But as I said, facts are facts. You're listening to The Week in Holyrood. I'm Charles Fletcher. And coming up in the next half hour, IndyRef 2 and the so-called rage against democracy. And next year's election may be in the post. Now questions to the First Minister and we begin with the Conservative group leader here at Holyrood, Ruth Davidson. The public need to have confidence in the test and protect system. It is the most effective tool that we have until a vaccine arrives and we all want it to succeed. But serious questions have been asked this week and the public deserves to hear honest and upfront answers. We have learned that the figures showing the number of people contacted by the system was wrong. And we also learned from the Health Secretary yesterday that the First Minister was told that they were wrong a week ago and yet the findings were quietly buried in the revision to a Public Health Scotland paper and only came to light thanks to journalists digging. The First Minister has made much of the need for transparency and accountability in this crisis. Does she feel that in this instance that standard has been met? First Minister. Um, Public Health Scotland issued a correction and made that available on the website, but I, I do agree with the need for openness and transparency. I also agree very much that it is important that uh, we maintain public confidence in Test and Protect, and public confidence in Test and Protect is absolutely merited. I want to maybe just take a moment uh, to explain to people what the coding error uh, actually was and what the implications uh, of that uh, have been. Uh, what the error meant was that previously, if you had, for example, been tested at 9am on a Monday morning and then you were contacted by a contact tracer having tested positive at, say, 11 o'clock on the Tuesday morning, the system was counting that as within 24 hours because it was the next calendar day, when in actual fact that was slightly more than 24 hours and therefore should have been in the 24 to 48 hour period. But in many cases, this is a difference of a very small number of hours. That said, it shouldn't have happened, um, but it was a, a, an issue of how information uh, was presented and that has now been corrected um, and the revised uh, data, of course, is available on the website. Uh, but the most important thing, uh, I think, in terms of public confidence is that Test and Protect uh, is operating to a very high standard. It is exceeding by a large margin at the World Health Organization standard. Uh, and that standard is, and I'm quoting, at least 80% of new cases should have their uh, close contacts uh, traced and in quarantine within 72 hours of case confirmation. So at least 80%. The most recent figures for Test and Protect 
is that they are achieving 95.8% within 72 hours. They're actually achieving 88.7% within 48 hours, exceeding the WHO standard for 72 hours within 48 uh, hours. Uh, so where there are issues, uh, we address those issues, but let's none of us uh, forget the fact that people working in Test and Protect are doing a very good job. If you compare the performance of Test and Protect to Test and Trace in England, for example, um, it is performing to a high standard in its own terms, but also to a relatively high standard, and the government will continue to support it to do so. Ms Davison. I think that if the First Minister had wanted to bring... Uh, people with her on this, she should have proactively fronted it up at one of her daily press conferences because people accept that mistakes will be made, but they also expect that their government will hold their hands up. Now, let's be clear, um, it is good news that we are currently exceeding the WHO targets thanks to the efforts of frontline staff. But I think it's wrong of the First Minister not to acknowledge that for eight consecutive weeks at the start of the COVID second wave, we were not meeting those targets. And we didn't know that we were missing them because of this data error. Now, the First Minister is right that the WHO says to be effective, we had a contact rate of over 80% in 72 hours. The week of the 10th of October, when we were counting a contact as a physical conversation, we missed that target by a mile, recording under 70% of contacts trace. So can I ask, is that why on the 10th of October, the Scottish Government moved to change what constituted a contact as a simple text on its own? First Minister. Uh, no, um, I wasn't aware of the coding error at, at that stage and Public Health Scotland wasn't aware of the coding error. Let me, let me just repeat, and I think it is important for the public to understand, nobody, uh, including me, is saying that it is not important that that coding error uh, happened. It is, and it's been rectified, but it is also important that we don't overstate the consequences or implications of that. In many cases, this was, a, this was uh, still people who were contacted the next day, but the time the next day that they were contacted would have taken them perhaps a few hours over the 24-hour uh, period. So let's, let's understand the context for that. Um, on the issue about... Um, people being texted, I think it's really important to understand uh, how the system works. So if you take index cases, all index cases, that's people who test positive, are telephoned uh, by Test and Protect. And it makes repeated attempts to reach people if it doesn't do that the first time. There's a small percentage, uh, about 6% of index cases that Test and Protect have not managed to contact. That's not a failure of Test and Protect. That's people, frankly, who are not answering their phone uh, to Test and Protect. And we've all got a personal responsibility uh, here. But all index cases are contacted by telephone. Uh, on average, these calls last an hour, and the information that Test and Protect gets is invaluable. For uh, people identified as close contacts, there is a mix of SMS, text messages and telephone calls. Uh, sometimes SMS messages are used uh, for speed of contact, but around 40% of close contacts are actually telephoned. Now, that is actually different, as I understand it, to the position uh, elsewhere in the UK. In England, all close contacts are only texted or emailed, not uh, telephoned. So the system in Scotland, um, of course, where there are issues, uh, we must make sure those issues are addressed. But the system in Scotland is working well. Ruth Davison is right to put that down to the hard work of people on the front line, as I uh, always do. And while I hope people uh, know by now, I am probably the last person to be complacent about any of this. 
That will perhaps be one of the reasons why right now, although uh, we have uh, big challenges with COVID, prevalence and incidence of the virus is a bit lower in Scotland than it is uh, in other parts of the UK. So I have confidence in this system and I think people across Scotland should have confidence in this system as well. Labour leader Richard Leonard. Last night, the Cabinet Secretary for Health told Parliament that what undermines confidence in the test and protect system was misrepresentation. Since September, the First Minister has told Parliament on at least 10 occasions that test and protect is excellent, it's working well. Isn't that a misrepresentation? No, if, if Richard Leonard is saying I've done it on uh, 10 occasions, I'm about to do it on an 11th occasion. Test and Protect is working well. It is doing a good job. And I think it is a disservice to those working in that system to suggest otherwise. The coding error, the coding error that has uh, is rightly been raised, and we're answering questions about that rightly and properly. I have set out what that is. That is an error in how uh, figures were being presented. It shouldn't have happened, uh, and it has been rectified. But that does not change the fact that Test and Protect is working well. Just let me again uh, remind people of the performance of Test and Protect against the World Health Organisation standard. 80% of new cases should have their contacts traced and quarantined within 72 hours. The most recent uh, figures, 95.8. It was over 90% uh, the week before uh, as well. So Test and Protect is working well um, and people should continue to have confidence in it because it is vital to our overall approach to COVID that people do have confidence in it. Richard Leonard. Uh, thank you. But the data shows that in eight weeks, over August to October, you failed to meet that WHO standard. And the, and the SAGE advice is that to make a significant impact on the R number, the delay should not be greater than 48 hours. Look, we're agreed that an effective tracing system is key to containing the virus. We're agreed that it is in all of our interests for the government to succeed. But that's why it's so worrying to see the system struggling so much. While the First Minister was standing in Parliament saying in recent weeks, as she said again today, that the system was working well, one third of contacts were not being traced within 72 hours. So once again, there is a disconnect between the First Minister's parliamentary pronouncements and what's going on out there in the real world. And it's not just the tracing of contacts that is taking too long. The most recent reports from Public Health Scotland show that there have been thousands, three and a half thousand to be precise, people who have tested positive but who have not been interviewed by Test and Protect. 400 in the past week alone. So is the First Minister seriously telling the people of Scotland that this shows Test and Protect is working well? Isn't it showing us that it's desperately short of resources and that the government needs to get a grip? First Minister. Um, I think Test and Protect is working well. I am not complacent at all. Um, there was an error made in how the figures were presented. That's been rectified. Yes, we have had to build up the resilience of Test and Protect and the figures that it is now achieving, the performance that it is now achieving, is by uh, the, the gold WHO standard exceptionally good. Can I, in all seriousness, take on the 3,500 uh, point? Um, because, of course, that is a concern, but it is simply and factually wrong to describe that as a failure of test and protect or somehow down to lack of resources. What, these, uh, what that number is, and that's about 6% of the total uh, number of uh, 
people that have had to be contacted uh, index cases, I think that figure is a percentage of over the whole period test and protect has been operational. That is, that, those are people who, despite the best efforts of test and protect, don't answer their phones uh, and don't reply to the text messages. Now, all of us have a personal responsibility. Uh, you cannot blame Test and Protect if people are not answering their phone uh, to Test and Protect. So let's all of us encourage the tiny minority that might be in that category uh, to not do that and to make sure that they are answering their phone to Test and Protect. And people, people across the Chamber might not like that reality, but that's what that figure relates to. Uh, that is not Test and Protect failing to try to contact people. That is them not successfully managing to contact people because the contacts are not answered. Richard Leonard. Well, the 3,500 people who tested positive uh, were those who could not be reached, and that's a serious source of the transmission of the virus. The 9,252 people who were contacts who could not be reached, they are also potentially a serious cause of the transmission of the virus. So it's important that we get this as accurate and as properly resourced as possible. But it isn't just on test and protect where there is a disconnect between government rhetoric and reality. One month on from the introduction of new guidance on care home visiting, 90% of families contacted by Care Home Relatives Scotland have seen no improvement in visiting arrangements. In fact, many have seen arrangements getting worse. One relative said they feel constant stress and separation anxiety as mum becomes frail and is asking for me. I feel I'm letting her down. First Minister, this could be changed if care home visitors could get tested. After nine months of isolation and separation, families are calling for our help, calling for our help to reunite them with their loved ones in care homes. They say, in their words, that they are running out of time and that they need to see change happen now. If rapid testing can be introduced for students, why can't the Scottish Government prioritise rapid testing for these desperate families? Uh, we are, we are prioritising, and the Health Secretary will be setting out the timetable for that uh, shortly. I'll come back to care home visiting in a second, but I don't want to, uh, I, I don't want to, to, to miss out on just finishing the, the final point of Richard Leonard's question on test and protect, because I agree with him that three and a half thousand and around of index cases and around nine thousand. Uh, of contacts that Test and Protect did not manage to contact is not something we shouldn't be concerned about. But it is absolutely not the case that these people haven't been contacted because Test and Protect didn't have the resources or didn't try to contact them. These are the minority of people uh, that haven't responded to calls from Test and Protect. Now, people can not want to accept that if they want, but that is the reality of what those numbers mean. What does that mean our message should be? The vast majority of people are complying, are responding magnificently when they get called by Test and Protect, but for whatever reason, there is a minority who are not, and we need to continue to send the message that they should. Uh, so let's not say if there are resource issues with Test and Protect, we will address them, but anybody who's trying to say that that is down to resource issues with Test and Protect is frankly not correct and I think it is really important to be clear about that. On care home visiting, um, we all want to see as much normality. That's why we are introducing testing for uh, care home visitors. And I say the Health Secretary will set out the detail of the timing uh, of that uh, shortly. Uh, but we have to strike the right balance between uh, allowing families to visit. We all understand the importance of that and 
given that we are in a period of higher prevalence again of the virus, making sure that we keep residents and care homes safe. That is not an easy balance to strike and it is harder uh, for anybody, it's not harder for anybody than it is for uh, families of those in care homes. But we will continue to take the steps to get that balance right and make sure that we are protecting people in care homes in that broadest sense. Lib Dem leader, Willie Rennie. This week marks 50,000 people who have lost their lives because of this virus. This must be a reminder to us all that the efforts of those in government taking decisions and those of us scrutinising, challenging and supporting their work have just not done enough. So let me ask this. I want to avoid a repeat of the PPE protective equipment problems from earlier this year. Last week, GPs were given new supplies. It was supposed to include aprons, but they were given white tint polythene bags instead. Holes had been cut out for heads and arms. GPs are annoyed about this. Why did it happen? First Minister. Can I say, first of all, um, the 50,000 uh, mark uh, that the UK as a whole met this week on uh, deaths, and obviously we've reported quite a significant number of deaths in Scotland over the past uh, couple of weeks. Of course, that should remind all of us of the severity of the challenge we have faced and continue to face. Can I say, as uh, somebody in government taking these decisions every day, I don't need uh, a reminder of that. These things are uppermost in my mind literally every minute of every day. That doesn't mean I always get things right. Uh, far from it. Uh, but... Uh, Everybody should be assured uh, that trying to save lives, trying to minimise the health impact uh, and trying to minimise the overall impact of uh, COVID is uh, the, the principal and primary uh, and driving focus of this government each and every day. Um, the issue about PPE, uh, there was uh, so two points I would make to that. Uh, well, before I make either of them, actually, let me say one of the most important responsibilities of government is to make sure that those in the front line of our health and care services have the, the PPE they need, and the government has taken a number of steps to make sure that is the case and we will continue to make sure that our stocks are resilient and that the quality of PPE is as it should be. In this particular instance uh, there was uh, a concern about firstly uh, the, the labelling of uh, these uh, aprons uh, as uh, bin bags that had been uh, reformulated that uh, has been confirmed that that was a, a mislabeling um, and not uh, correct. These were PPE aprons. Um, and also, in the second point, and the most important point, is that these aprons fully comply with all regulations and had passed rigorous quality assurance. Uh, but the third point, actually, there's a third point I want to make, which is perhaps more to GPs uh, than to, to Willie Rennie. Any GP uh, that wants to have a different style of apron to these ones, if the, for whatever reason they don't have confidence in them, can... Uh, issue, uh, raise a replacement request through their local health board supplies team um, and alternatives will be supplied. Uh, but all of the PPE we provide goes through rigorous checks and I think people on the front line have a right to expect that. Willie Rennie. Uh, I thank the uh, First Minister for that answer. Um, but whatever the label, they do look like bin bags and manufacturers believed they were bin bags and they are not making GPs feel particularly valued at this time. The PPE hub told a GP that they were at the mercy of the PPE push from the government and that no others were available at that time. I think GPs will just want to know that these will be taken out of circulation and they'll have aprons in future. Yesterday, at last, the government agreed to test students. But the junior minister in charge refused to test students 
before their return to university after Christmas. That risks a repeat of the scenes in September when thousands of students were locked up in halls. Will the First Minister overrule her minister and confirm that these students will be tested when they return from home? First Minister. Um, firstly, before I come on to testing, just on the PPE and aprons, um, I'm not sure there is an argument to take these out of circulation, but I will certainly ask that question of uh, those who advise me. These were medical-grade uh, aprons that had been independently tested, and I think it's important to, to make that clear. If GPs prefer a different style, they can uh, request that, and I will certainly query whether there is any reason why uh, these shouldn't be in circulation. We take the responsibility to ensure that uh, those working in our health service have the right protection very, very seriously. In terms of testing of students, uh, we've put in place the arrangements for students who want to, not all students uh, will either want to, or indeed in uh, relation to care experience students, be able to uh, go home, because for some of them, uh, university is uh, home. But those who uh, are able to and want to go home for Christmas, we have put in place the arrangements, of which uh, testing is a part, but not the only part. We have not yet uh, finalised the plans for the return of students, whether we will want to have uh, the return in the same way as happened in October at all, and if that is the case, uh, what role testing will pay, play. So it's not that we have ruled anything out, it is that we are continuing to consult with students, with the, the sector, to get the right arrangements in place there. And, you know, January, for a variety of reasons, the season, uh, having had Christmas, um, and, of course, potential issues with students, uh, potentially is going to be a very challenging month in terms of COVID. So it is really important that we take all of the due precautions and think very carefully about before finalising plans. And that's what we are doing in terms of the return of students after Christmas. And we'll set out the detail of that as soon as possible. The Scottish Secretary, Alistair Jack, has come under pressure this week over independence. He says the UK government has no intention of agreeing to Indiref 2 for up to 40 years. Under the terms of the Scotland Act 1998, which set up the Scottish Parliament, constitutional matters are reserved to Westminster. This means Holyrood does not have the power to call an independence referendum unless it gets consent from London. You'll recall that's what happened with the Edinburgh Agreement enabling the legal 2014 referendum. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon accused the Scottish Secretary of raging against democracy. And then former Prime Minister Sir John Major said there should be two referendums, one on the issue of independence itself, the other to ratify or otherwise the terms of departure from the Union. In the Commons, Pete Wishart, SNP, Perth and North Perthshire. Can I just say to the Secretary of State, he's doing such a fantastic job in strengthening the Union that support for independence is at a historic high and has been a sustained majority all year. And can I say to you, I'm saying no to a majority in Scotland is only going to drive support for independence even higher. But apparently he was only joking when he said that there would be no Indiref for 40 years just after John Major said there would be two referendums in the next few years. And of course, he's renowned for his legendary wit and humour, but the Scottish people 
are not finding this democracy denial funny anymore. My belief is that we stick to the referendum and respect it from 2014. It was very clear, the SNP said at the time, it was once in a generation. I don't believe we should go into a process of neverendums, which are divisive, unsettling, bad for jobs in Scotland. We should respect democracy, and that's what I'm doing, democracy that was handed out by the Scottish people in 2014. Now, tragically, there's no magic wand or crystal ball to hand, so I can't really tell you what life is going to be like next May. But that's when the Scottish election is scheduled to happen, and the First Minister says she sees no reason at this stage why it shouldn't go ahead as planned. But the planning and the delivery of Election Day could be radically different from what we're used to. If the pandemic is continuing its impact on our lives, social distancing may still be in place. And postal voting could take precedence over going to the polling station in person.